Welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educators. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Rowe. Welcome to another episode of the Chef Educator Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Roach, and today we're delving into the fascinating world of cognitive science and its implications for education. We'll be exploring the idea that the human mind isn't inherently designed for thinking and how we, as educators, can optimize our teaching strategies to encourage thoughtful engagement in our students. But before we get into the nitty-gritty, I'd like to share a book recommendation with you that has certainly influenced my perspective on this topic. It's called Why Don't Students Like School by Daniel Willingham. Now, even though it was published back in 2009, its insights are as relevant today as ever. The book's subtitle is A Cognitive Scientist Answers Questions About How the Mind Works and What It All Means for the Classroom. To me, this book is a must-read for educators, and you can find more information about it in our show notes, along with a link. All right, let's dive in. To kick things off, let's challenge a common assumption, which is that the brain is naturally wired for deep thinking. In reality, thinking is a slow and unreliable process for our brains. We're naturally drawn to problem-solving and mental challenges, but we tend to avoid thinking when the cognitive conditions aren't favorable. This fundamental principle guides our discussion today, which is people are naturally curious, but not naturally proficient thinkers. Understanding the brain's tendencies to avoid excessive thinking is crucial for us as educators. We need to leverage this knowledge to help foster a love for problem-solving and critical thinking among our students. But first, let's unravel how our brains perceive and approach thinking. And I'll start right out by saying humans don't think very often because our brains are not designed for thought, but for the avoidance of thought. And by thinking, I mean solving problems, uh, reasoning, maybe reading something complex, or doing mental work that requires some effort. Thinking is not only effortful, but it's also slow and unreliable. Henry Ford once said, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason why so few people engage in it. Ever wondered what sets humans apart in the grand scheme of existence? Well, many would argue it's our ability to reason and think critically. However, the reality is that our brains aren't optimized for extensive thinking. They're more efficient at perceiving and moving. In comparison with tasks like math and science, machines can easily outperform humans. Think about it. For a few dollars, you could purchase a calculator that can perform simple calculations faster and more accurately than any human can. Tasks involving perception and movement are what showcases our brain's true power. 
Thinking, on the other hand, is laborious and slow compared to our innate abilities like sight and movement. In our day-to-day lives, we often rely on memory to guide our actions, especially for tasks we've tackled before. Our brains adapt to repeat tasks, making them automatic and requiring less cognitive effort. In other words, most of the problems we face are ones we've solved before, so we just do what we've done in the past. And our memory stores strategies to guide what we should do, you know, where to turn when we're driving home, how to handle a minor dispute with our children or students in our classrooms, uh, what to do when a pot on the stove starts to boil over. It's all coming out of memory. For most of these decisions we make, we don't stop to consider what we might do. We don't reason about it. We don't anticipate possible consequences and so on. For example, when the average person decides to make uh, spaghetti for dinner, they don't pour through cookbooks. They don't weigh each recipe for its nutritional value, for its taste, for its ease of preparation, or, oh, let's calculate the cost of ingredients, or what will be the visual appeal, and so on. Now, we might do that as chefs. But the typical person doesn't. They just make spaghetti sauce the way they always do, which unfortunately is often just opening a jar in today's times. As psychologists put it, most of the time what we do is what we do most of the time. And when you feel as though you know, you're on autopilot, even if you're doing something rather complex, such as driving home from work or from school, it's because you are using memory to guide your behavior. Using memory doesn't require much of our attention, so we are free to daydream, even as we're stopping at red lights and passing other cars and watching out for you know pedestrians or dogs or something to run on the road. We can do that because we're basing this on our memory. Now, the implications for education sound kind of grim. You know, if people are bad at thinking and they try to avoid it, what does that say about students' attitudes towards school? Well, Fortunately, the story doesn't end with people stubbornly refusing to think. Despite the fact that we're not good at it, we actually like to think. We're just not good at it, but we like to. We are naturally curious animals, and we look for opportunities to engage in certain types of thought. But because thinking is so hard, the conditions have to be right for this curiosity to thrive. Or we're just going to quit thinking. You know, just give up pretty fast, too. Therefore, as educators, we need to ensure that our students have the chance to tackle problems that align with their abilities, that foster a love for learning and for problem solving. And we can achieve this by incorporating the right mix of challenges and you know, while we're respecting the cognitive limits of our students and we, we're going to be framing intriguing questions to build, bring that curiosity out. And we're also going to be flexible in our teaching approaches. And I'm going to talk more about this shortly. I wanted to go into how or why we like solving problems. And that is because solving problems brings pleasure. And when I say solving problems or problem solving, I mean any cognitive work that succeeds. Again, that's the key. It succeeds. We've solved it. It might be understanding you know, a difficult topic of a lecture or a class, or maybe it's uh, planning a banquet, or maybe planning out how you want to lay out your garden, or sizing up an investment opportunity. 
These are all problem solving and they're going to bring pleasure when we solve them. There's a sense of satisfaction, of fulfillment and successful thinking. Therefore, even though the brain is not set up for very efficient thinking, people actually enjoy mental activities, at least in some circumstances. Think about it. We all have hobbies like solving crossword puzzles or are people playing video games or we watch information packed documentaries, right? We, we pursue careers such as teaching like us that offer greater mental challenges than others say competing careers, even though, as we all know, the pay is lower with teaching. Now, not only are we willing to think as humans, we intentionally seek out situations that demand thought. Kind of a paradox there, huh? We intentionally seek out situations that demand thought. Now, bringing this into the classroom, in order to make learning more engaging, we as educators must create opportunities for successful problem solving, providing that pleasurable rush that comes from solving or cracking that problem. This means we need to structure our lessons with thoughtful consideration of the cognitive load and the difficulty of the problems that are in those modules, in those lessons, in those classes, and their relevance to our students, the students we have in class, the current students. Because sometimes when we create curriculum, we're not thinking of the current students, we're thinking of students in general. So you have to kind of switch our thinking here. School tasks that are too difficult or too easy for students can lead to disinterest or frustration. It's a delicate balance to engage students at the right level of difficulty that sparks their curiosity while encouraging problem solving. Mental work appeals to us because it offers the opportunity, as I mentioned, for that pleasant feeling when it succeeds. The pleasure is in the solving of the problem. Working on a problem with no sense that a person is making progress is not pleasurable. In fact, it's frustrating. And we've all seen this with ourselves and with our students. But on the other hand, there is no great pleasure in simply knowing the answer. That's too easy. Even if someone doesn't tell you the answer to a problem, once you've had too many hints, you lose the sense that you have actually really solved the problem. And getting the answer doesn't bring that same, you know, mental snap of satisfaction, right? Doesn't bring that pleasure. So it's a tough one. You know, it can't be too, too hard, too difficult. Frustration sets in, can't be too easy, bored. This doesn't really matter. It's not important. Fine line there that we have to thread. To summarize, I've said that thinking is slow, effortful, and uncertain. Nevertheless, People like to think, or more properly, we like to think if we judge that the mental work will pay off with the pleasurable feelings we get when we solve a problem. And it is curiosity that prompts people to explore new ideas and problems. But when we do, we quickly evaluate how much mental work it will take to solve the problem. You know, we do kind of an assessment like, oh, this is too much work or it's not enough work. Again, we've seen this with our students. If it's too much or too little, we stop working on the problem if we can. Usually adults, you can just say, I'm not doing that. Students, sometimes they can't because they're stuck in the classroom. But even though, this is important for us to know as educators. 
In other words, working on problems that are of the right level of difficulty is rewarding, but working on problems that are too easy or too difficult is unpleasant. Remember, the goal is to make thinking enjoyable for our students, and understanding how our brains process information is the first step. It's about finding that sweet spot where learning is a rewarding experience filled with curiosity and the joy of discovery. Now, I'm going to give you six recommendations or ideas or thoughts that you can implement in your classrooms to make sure this happens, that that curiosity is there and it's rewarding for our students. Okay, number one, be sure that there are problems to be solved in every lesson. And by problem, I don't necessarily mean a question addressed to the class by the teacher or some mathematical puzzle. I mean cognitive work that poses a moderate challenge. This sort of cognitive work is, of course, the main stuff of teaching. You know, we do try to do this all the time. We want our students to think. But without some attention, a lesson plan can become a string of teacher explanations with little opportunity for students to solve problems. You know, it's just that dreaded lecture with just one-way conversation, right? That's why we active learning and student engagement is so important because it gets them to solve these problems, which helps the knowledge stick in their minds. So what we can do is scan each of our lesson plans with an eye towards the cognitive work that students will be doing. Ask ourselves, how often does such work occur? Is it intermixed with cognitive breaks? You know, and when we look through our lesson plans, we've identified the problems students will need to solve. We need to then consider, well, are they clear? Are they clear so the students understand what they're supposed to do with this problem? Or will students simply try to guess what you know, we want them to do or want them to say. Again, we want it to be challenging and clear, but not too much difficult and not too easy. Number two, respect students' cognitive limits. When trying to develop effective mental challenges for your students, bear in mind the cognitive limitations, which we previously talked about. An example from the book explains it this way, and I like this one, so I'm going to share it with you. It says, suppose you begin a history lesson with a question on a topic we have all heard of before, which is the Boston Tea Party. And you ask the question, so why do you suppose the colonists dressed as Indians and dumped tea into the Boston Harbor? Well, that could be good for us because we know about it, but we have to think about it from the student's perspective. Do your students have the necessary background knowledge and memory to consider this question? What do they know about the relationship of the colonies and the British crown in 1773? Do they know about the social and economic significance of tea back then? I mean, today, they'll probably think it's not as worthy, right? It doesn't have as much worth. Can the students generate reasonable alternative courses of action? Because if they lack the appropriate background knowledge, the question you posed will quickly be judged as boring. And if it's above their cognitive level at the time, and the students lack the background knowledge to engage with the problem, well, then they're going to be frustrated. So what we want to do is, doesn't mean throw it out, it means save it for another time when they have that knowledge. Like after we've already done a lesson or a lecture, we've had modules on that topic. That's when we want to bring that out. Equally important is the limit on working memory. Remember that people can keep only so much information in, mind, in their mind at once. Overloads of that working memory are caused by things like multi-step instructions or lists of unconnected facts or chains of logic that are more than two to three steps long or the application of a just-learned concept to new material. Again, it's too much. It's an overload. So unless the concept is very simple, it's going to overload their memory. So the solution to working memory overload is straightforward. Slow the pace. Slow it down. Chunk it up. 
Use memory aids, such as writing on the whiteboard, or put it in a part of a PowerPoint, or do think-pair shares. This will all help save students from keeping too much information in working memory and allow them to move it into long-term memory or put it into their notes. Number three, clarify the problems to be solved. How can you make the problem interesting? Now, a common strategy is to try to make the material relevant to students. And this strategy sometimes works. They're always like, you know, you got to relate to your students at, at their age or where they are in the classroom. But even then, it's hard to do, especially with some material. And it doesn't kind of relate to them. If you're talking chemistry, how does it relate, right? Food safety and sanitation, how does it relate? HACCP. It's not going to never relate unless they, maybe they had it in high school. So sometimes it's hard to do that. And another difficulty is that in our classes, we have lots of different people. So we don't know their backgrounds. You know, we could have, uh, I don't know, two football fans, a doll collector, a NASCAR enthusiast, a horseback riding competitor, you know, a ballerina. You know, we have all different types and they have all different backgrounds. You know, you get the idea. What are they bringing in from previous knowledge? What is the, what is what do they like to get excited about? What motivates them? You know, mentioning a popular singer in the course, right, may give, uh, in the, during your lesson, I don't know, Shakira or someone else, this could get a giggle, but it won't do much more than that. So you're relating to them. You're talking about maybe what was on the, the awards show last night, but it has nothing to do with it. So it's not going to remember. It's not going to help with the lesson. As emphasized, our curiosity is provoked when we perceive a problem that we believe we can solve. What is the question that will engage students and make them want to know the answer? Keep it on track. Sometimes I think that we, as teachers, are so eager to get to the answers that we do not devote sufficient time to developing the question. But as the information that we just talked about in this episode so far, it's the question that piques the people's interest. It piques our students' interest, what gets them engaged. Being told the answer doesn't do anything for them. So that's why we have to think about that when we start. When you plan a lesson, you start with the information you want students to know by the end of the lesson, right? Backwards by design. But at the same time, we should be considering what the key questions for that lesson might be and how we can frame that question so we'll have the right level of difficulty to not only engage our students, but also respect their cognitive limitations. So as we're writing our lesson plans, let's write out our questions as well. Number four, knowing when to challenge students. Teachers often seek to draw students into a lesson by presenting a problem that we believe will interest the students, right? Right off the bat, maybe sometimes we say, you know, start with a question right when the students come in or something to get them thinking, get them, you know, engaged. For example, why do we cook chicken to a minimum of 165 degrees? You know, we could introduce this by, you know, having it up on the screen or we could start a discussion about it or we could start talking about health code laws and how wide they've been passed and why. We could do a demonstration, maybe a Petri dish, talk about salmonella, or we could prevent, you know, facts, maybe on the illnesses and how many people have died because of salmonella, show a movie, something to shock them that we think students will find surprising. In either case, the goal was to puzzle students, you know, to make them curious. It's like to engage them. And it's a useful technique. Definitely, I've used that before. But it's also worth considering whether these strategies might be used only at the beginning of a lesson, right? But also, could we use them after the concept has been learned? Do these things at the end of a lesson? 
For example, let's talk about a culinary demonstration. It might be to show whipping heavy cream, turning it into butter. You know, every time I've done that, students, no doubt, they're impressed. They don't know that. They're like, wow, it's butter. But if they don't know the principles behind it, the demonstration is really just like a magic trick, right? Momentarily, they're thrilled, but then their curiosity kind of wanes because they don't understand it. So it doesn't last very long. They're like, oh, wow, it's a magic trick. Well, we don't know how that happened or something. But it still could do that. It could work for you. But I'm just saying to think about it a different way. Another strategy be good, could be to conduct the demonstration after students have learned, say, about emulsifications, right? Emulsions. And then they can relate the demonstration to that knowledge. So every fact or demonstration that would puzzle students before they have the right background information has the potential to also be an experience that will puzzle students momentarily when done at the end and then lead to the pleasure of problem solving. See, because now they can relate it and they say, oh, I know why it's what we talked about or I saw that in my textbook or we saw a movie on that. So now it's going to help them learn. So it can be done in the beginning. But it may, when we're doing our lesson plans, think about it, it may be more beneficial. It may be worth thinking about when to use your demonstrations and your presentations and or your problems in class based on when they will have the most impact on learning. Number five, accept and accommodate variations in your student's preparation. And this we all know. You know, I've never accepted the fact that some students are just not very bright and not and shouldn't be should be tracked into less demanding classes. You know, every student has the right to be in the class. And I always say it's a challenge to teach the, you know, the D students and the C students. The A students, they teach themselves. But everybody needs to be in there and everybody has a chance. But at the same time, it's naive to pretend that all students come to our classes equally prepared to excel. They have different preparations as well as different levels of support at home, you know, different abilities. They may have already had some restaurant work, may have had it in high school. So it's true then it's self-defeating because we know they're all different, right? We just say that's true. Then it's self-defeating to give all of our students the same work, right? Because they're all coming with different backgrounds. So to give them all the same level of work, we're assuming they're all at the same place. But we have to meet our students where they are. The less capable students will find it too difficult and will struggle against their brain's bias to mentally, you know, they'll walk away from the schoolwork, right? They're going to say, I I can't do this. To the extent that you can, it's smart, I think, to assign work to individuals or groups of students that is appropriate to their current level of competence. Now, we can't do this all the time. That's why I say when you can we still have outcomes and objectives that we have to test or assess for. But sometimes when we're picking different things, you know, we could let them pick their own projects based on their own interests. You know, that's always an easy way to do it. But even when we're pairing in a lab, they could do different items. You know, someone that's going to be filleting the fish or grilling steaks to medium rare may have to have a little bit more experience or knowledge or bringing something to the table than the others that may not. And they may be better suited for another uh, lesson. So naturally, we want to do this in a sensitive way, minimizing the extent to which some students will perceive themselves as behind others, right? We don't want to you know, embarrass anyone to call them out. But the fact is that they are behind the others. And giving them work that is beyond them is unlikely to help them catch up, right? It's likely to make them fall even further behind. And then maybe they'll get really frustrated and give up on the class. So sometimes we have to make those accommodations just to catch them up that remedial level of work, whatever that may be, to get them up to where the other students are. And that's part of our jobs as teachers. And the last one, number six, change the pace of your teaching. 
We all inevitably lose the attention of our students at some time. We've all done this. And as this I've already outlined in this episode, it's likely to happen if they feel somewhat confused, right? They get overloaded, their brain shuts down and they start daydreaming, right? So we lose their attention. They'll mentally check out. But the good news is that it's relatively easy to get them back. And that's through change because change grabs attention, as you no doubt already know. Think about it. If you have a big bang outside your window every or outside your classroom door, every head turns towards that sound, right? And when you change topics, you are starting new activity or in some other way show that you are shifting gears, virtually every student's attention will come back to you because the brain recognizes that switch and now they're going to change and you will have a new change or a new chance to engage them. So plan these shifts and monitor your class's attention to see whether you need to make them more often or maybe less frequently. Or if you see they're drifting, all right, let's try a new thing and switch it up. Keep switching it up, you know, chunk it up based on what your class is telling you, what you're observing, what's the feedback. That's what's really going to get them engaged and motivated. Okay, so in conclusion, the core idea that I want you to leave with is that solving a problem gives people pleasure, but the problem must be easy enough to be solved, yet difficult enough to take some mental effort. And finding this sweet spot of difficulty is not easy. Your experience in the classroom is your best guide. Whatever works, do it again. Whatever doesn't, throw it out, discard it, don't do it. But don't expect that you will really remember how well a lesson plan worked a year later, which is why you need to take notes or keep a lesson plan diary. Write it down because no matter if it goes brilliantly, the best lesson you've ever done, or it was bombed and went down in flames at the time, it's going to feel when it's happening that you'll never forget what happened. Yeah. I'm not going to forget this, but because of our memories, you know, we lose it and we can't remember it. So that's why we need to write it down. Even if it's just a quick, you know, note on a sticky note or a sticky pad, try to make it a habit of recording your successes and challenges and engaging your students. What the level of difficulty was in the problems that you posed to the students. Make a note that didn't work. Or I'm going to try this or I need more time. Put those things down to help you because it's a, you know, constant cycle of improvement. Okay, that's it for today's episode of the Chef Educator Podcast. I hope you found this deep dive into the human mind and its relationship with learning valuable. And then it has sparked some new ideas for you to explore and engage with your culinary students in your classrooms and labs. Remember, learning is a lifelong adventure. And as educators, we are the guides. Now, if you have any questions or topics that you would like us to explore in future episodes, Please reach out to us on our website or social media channels. Your feedback and ideas mean the world to us, and we love hearing from each and every one of you. Until next time, keep stoking the flames of curiosity in your classrooms, and keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now. The Chef Educator Podcast is a proud member of the Food Media Network, and we hope you enjoyed the show and this episode. Your feedback and comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. So please let us know what you think. You can email your comments to foodmedianetwork at gmail.com, all one word, foodmedianetwork 
at gmail.com or even leave us a voicemail on our audience response hotline. That number is area code 207-835-1275. That's 207-835-1275. We would also appreciate it if you'd share the podcast with everyone you know. And don't forget to buy us a coffee or two if you want to support the show and our efforts. Just go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash Chef Roach or through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Dr. Professor Chef. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We truly appreciate any help and support you provide. Thank you in advance.